guys, thank you all so much for listening. We made it to the end of season three. And I saved someone very special for my final guest. It's special for me because he's one of my closest friends. And special for you because he created a cultural phenomenon that all of us, whether we have played it or not, have been touched by. My final guest is Dan Hauser, the former lead writer and creative director of Rockstar Games, which is the company behind some of the most successful video games of all time. Dan was the head writer and creative director of Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption. GTA V is the most successful entertainment product in history. It has sold over 140 million copies. Red Dead Redemption 2 made a billion dollars in three days. These are mythic numbers and sums that any movie producer can only dream of. But more importantly to me, Dan is my dearest friend from Oxford. He is godfather to my daughter, and he's newly moved to LA, where it was my enormous pleasure to interview him. Hello. Hi. This is an absolute treat. Only one I've been chasing down for three years. No big deal. Welcome to my podcast. Welcome to Bookish. Dan, I do the whole um, intro blurb. I'll record it separately so that I don't have to make you sit here and wince as I describe you as the creator of the most successful entertainment product of all time. Say, I will. I'll just do that separately. Um, But thank you for being my guest and my friend. And it's really, really nice to have you on my show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you don't have to say that. I know I mean it's painful, it. do you? Okay. No, I'm excited. It's nice to... Um, my love, so one of the things mm-hmm. that the show is, uh, is, as we know, the five books that have shaped you. What was, what were the ones that leapt off the page and were like, those are a given, and what weren't? What was the agony about? What was the indecision over? Well, I hate making up my mind mm. in life in general sure. or committing to anything. Um, but I was, it was too few books. So I complained at you bitterly mm. for several months and mm. said, I want to do six. I want to do 20. I want to do 46. <laughs> I want to list every book I've ever read, uh, all eight of them. Um, and then I came up with a structure, which I liked, which mm. was one, I was just going to do fi- fiction. I wasn't going to write, put any non-fiction books in because I felt that had probably shaped me more internally than non-fiction. Mm. I love fiction, mm. always have. It's very important to me. And um, secondly, I thought I'd do one from, luckily I'm not quite 50, so I could do one from each decade of, each of the five decades of my life so far, and that would give it a bit of structure. I love that. I love that that was the um, rigour you imposed on it. That seems really, really helpful. I let you work well with a boundary too, and I made, I, I tried to pick one from all the genres that had, um, you know, I felt most affected me, and I felt like annoying as it was to mortgage a place to a cookbook I couldn't in good faith give up I couldn't in good faith talk about who I was without including a cookbook although it pained me to lose a novel but I'm 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 really struck by that and we'll get to it because I feel like you actually covered your you straddled your fiction non-fiction um rule so well by including the thin red line and that that maybe gave you some sort of leeway there we'll come to it we'll come mm-hmm. to it because we'll do them in 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 real order mm-hmm. and the order in which you gave them to me 
we both have copies of this first book in our lap, which is a treat and not always the case. And uh, and it's just really fun. So upset my old friend. So Dan's first book is Winter Holiday by Arthur Ransom. It was published in 1930. It is the fourth in the Swallows and Amazons series, which for American listeners is a beautiful series of books that he wrote about children largely mucking about in boats. This is semi-exception to that. Um, and uh, and very, very formative to most English readers, a, a real seminal uh, voice as, as a, a childhood. You tell me why this featured, when you read it, who read it to you? Well, this was the easiest book because it was the first book I think I ever read. Certainly the first book where I sat down and was told by my parents to kind of stop reading the books of early childhood Uh and start reading real books and was given this and told to read it. And I remember sitting there on a Saturday night and there was one Saturday evening, it was probably seven, maybe eight, I think seven. And there was something like a horror movie on in the next room. And I remember sitting in the kitchen plowing through this book and trying to understand it and and it it was as, as as fiction can be sort of simultaneously work it was quite hard the language was quite challenging at times to me um and incredible pleasure because it you know it was the first time I was ever kind of set free by a book mm. you're put into this world that is a world that's real and not real and is a landscape you know this is set in the in the lake district and it's this landscape i'd never visited at that time and love now and love really because of the books and it was this kind of world that had its own morality and had its own value system and where there was good and there was bad and it was a realistic world it well you know everything i've chosen is sort of realistic Mm. um and it, it was the beginning of, of, of this relationship that I've had with, with with fiction, really, ever since, where I've always been reading a book, and it's this other world. You know, there's sort of my life is my life and, and, and my relationships, and then my reading life. And they, they sort of are, they coexist at some point, and sometimes I'm reading a lot, and sometimes I'm not reading that much. But it's one of the, the sort of barometers of happiness if you have a book you're enjoying, because it's a second life. Yeah. It's the life of that book, and it's that if you're a reader, that's the thing that, I, this book gave to me mm. and so it was it was the easiest of the books to pick mm. you know the only one the only other book I could think from that period of my life that was influential to me was Wind in the Willows mm. which is also beautiful but I think you know Arthur Ransom such an interesting character yeah you know he was uh he'd not fought in the first world war and instead had gone to Russia and somehow got involved in their revolution where he was actually ferrying messages between the whites and the reds and ended up having lived this sort of fantastical life back in the Lake District, married to Engel's secretary, I think. Trotsky's. Trotsky's. Yeah. That's it. Trotsky's secretary. <laughs> Engel's long dead. Married to Trotsky's secretary, who was a kind of strange character. She hated everything he ever did. Always told him this book was the failure. And churned out these 12 novels, all of which I love. Mm. Um, and this is probably my favourite it's the least nautical. I did not have a very nautical childhood. So I was going to say, it was, Dan and I grew up in, in you know, a few miles apart in southwest London. So in concrete, concrete and stinging nettles. Yeah. You know, it's a, you know, it's it's. Uh, he's an interesting writer. They can seem a little humorless at times. They're quite straight, um, but the characters are very moral. They're not 
very snobbish, certainly for the time. They don't seem that dated. Some bits are very dated in this book, probably less than some of the other ones. Um, but the children have a sort of basic goodness mm. that I really loved and really, really aspired towards. Mm. And the world they live in is, is sort of simultaneously the real world and this imaginary, you know, imaginary world they invent. Mm. And I found that very compelling. Mm. And, uh, and I just, his prose is beautiful. You know, for a, a, you re, I've read them all to my children and his prose, just the way he describes landscape, the way he describes obliquely some quite complex periods of childhood. Like mm-hmm. in this book, these two new characters try and fit into this gang of six character, six friends already exist and the kind of way they're let in and not let in at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very well sort of it de- depicts the realities of childhood in a really interesting way. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, that was exactly when I was. I, I got the book this morning and was leafing through it. I always like to find a little bit mm-hmm. to read so that people have a snippet of the prose and get it. And the bit that I loved was exactly that moment that you're singling out of the um, feeling of exclusion. So they're watching the kids. Uh, mm-hmm. These new kids are on a boat and they're waving flags. There was more flag waving in the boat and more from the island. Then there was a pause, and a moment later the signalling began again. Only this time the signallers had two flags apiece and did not wave them, but held the flags at arm's length, first in one position, then in another. It's awfully cold, said Dorothea at last, standing about like this. She had been very happy, waking up in this new place, but those children in the boat had somehow spoiled things. What fun they were having, six of them, all together. A new story began to shape itself in her head, one that nobody would be able to read without tears. The Outcasts by Dorothea Callum, Chapter One. The two children, brother and sister, shared their last few crumbs and looked this way and that along the deserted shore. Was this to be the end? Oh well, said Dick, we can't help not having a boat. Let's go and find a really good place for an observatory. And I just mm-hmm. love that, that tiny moment of insight that children, and now obviously they do go on to become friends and allies and have this winter holiday together. But they, I mean, am I right? I'm assuming mm-hmm. there is there is that that emerges. But that moment of hesitation of, of it not just being an immediate um, handing over to the experience, but that threshold thing of like, they're having fun and we're not. And that and, doesn't feel good. And when they become friends, it's not unambiguous. Right. It's not without some challenges. And I just love her. She's very sweet and engaging. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, some of the, there's three characters in the Swallows and Amazon series that just jump off the page. Those two and uh, Nancy Blackett, who's an amazing yes. kind of larger than life, almost uninventable character who uh-huh. also sort of beams through this book, uh-huh. is sort of removed for a while by the plot and then comes back in. And they're such strong sort of influences in the, in the story. I love them all. Yeah. Did you, um, were books a part of your childhood? Did your mum and dad read to you a lot? Or were you just more alone with it? Was it something you Both. found by yourself? Both. Both, yeah, but, these I I I, I think my my, my mum read some of them to me, mm. but most of them I read on my own. Mm. Um, it was around the phase when I was being read to less mm. and reading and began to read properly on my own. Um, but yeah, both. Your mum's an actress, uh, mm-hmm. and did she do voices and things for you? Was she a great reader? Was that do she you remember was that a, being part of it? She was a great reader who didn't particularly annoyingly in retrospect ham up the accents. Right, right. But right. she was a very she's very good at reading. Right. 
Whereas I uh, want to read Harry Potter to my children far more than they actually want to hear it, just so I can do my full panoply of absurd regional English accents. And I can do them with utter impunity because we all live in L.A. and nobody could compare them to anyone or anything. And I can just ham it up for Uh, all it's worth. My children beg me, beg me to stop the accents. Do they? They say, you sound (laughs) ridiculous. Shut up. Please just read it straight. That's heartbreaking. I dread that though. Um, the other thing I loved about this, and then we'll move on to the next one. I, to me, these swallows and Amazon's books, and I didn't know this one, uh, and I can't wait for Billy to get into it. There's a wholesomeness about it, and an idealism, and fused with exactly as you say, the sort of meticulous realism of Lake Windermere and, and the these tiny moments of childhood and things. But it's also, there's something to me that I love. Um, these children feel safe, bounded by parents or caretakers who are absent but not absentee, um, not neglectful. There's a benign neglect and sort of boundary around these kids that allows them to have these extraordinary experiences that have some peril and and some stakes to them, but that feel safe in some way while giving them enormous freedom. I think that was something as a only child of a single mom in London that I felt uh, that was a piece Mm -hmm. that I remember resonating with was like, God, how amazing to be mucking about in a boat on your own with a brother. Yes. I mean, I think there's in, in the 12, there's probably two and a half, maybe three, um, that that are slightly metafiction uh-huh. and that have real guns in them right. and that have this much more and much more fantastical adventures when they couldn't possibly be in school. Right. It doesn't make sense that children would be really having these adventures and they're kind of fiction embedded within the fiction. It's quite an interesting mm-hmm. sort of device. But the, the these ones, particularly the ones set in the Lake District, are very much that they are, are are very much not that they are this kind of slightly bounded adventure mm. but where there is still some real world intrusion and some mild danger and occasional crime you mm. know they, they, they bad things happen mm. um and the children are challenged morally mm. and, and they usually figure out the correct ethical path mm. and it's quite interesting you know, they, they are, you can see why he was, a lot of people thought Arthur Ransom might be a communist spy. And they're very remarkably kind of godless books. You know, mm. the children have their ethics completely separate from that side of English life. It's quite an interesting way of seeing the world. Super you know, interesting, particularly given that one of the kids' books that's come up, or, or series that's come up regularly, notably with English um, guests, has been the um, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe mm-hmm. series, which is... You completely know, opposite. Completely the opposite and complicated. Like I'm longing for the kids to read it and I'm complicated by by the Aslan of it all. I find that a very tough one to sort of offer up to them. You know, for this for this reason, I find that mythology um, heavy handed at, at times. Well, Tolkien used to attack C.S. Lewis for doing for it, even though they're friends. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, let's move on to your next book. Okay. So the next book in the order that you gave them to me is Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Uh, It was published in 1847. It was her only novel. We, I'm so intrigued and I love when this happens. I know you'll squirm. I love when this happens. So we've had this book already this season, 
from another guest who was a woman and who had predictably entirely her response to what this is. So I was so intrigued to see this book on your list. I wouldn't have, and I know you pretty well, and I know your reading tastes pretty well. I wouldn't have put this on your list. Tell me when you read it, what your relationship to it is, how it landed in your lap. Hmm. I read it before I knew you. Right. Um, I was just like probably 17 or maybe just 18. Mm -hmm. And as with Winter Holiday, it was a very easy choice because it was one of, I remember it was that period when you've given up reading kids' books or or young adult books or whatever they're called now, and you're struggling to find grown-up books you can engage in. Mm -hmm. And there were two books that really start, and I was reading lots of weird things like Machiavelli's The Prince, trying to figure out, you know, how to be a prince. Um, (laughs) And ridiculous books like that. And I was not happy reading. Mm. And then I read in a short period of time, and it was the one other book I nearly chose for this period of my life of, of, you know, 10 to 20, um, this and Vanity Fair. Mm. And they're completely different books. I mean, they're written in a vaguely similar time period, Mm -hmm. but they were sort of both appealed to me in different ways. But I felt that Vanity Fair, other books I was going to pick kind of covered the same sort of material. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and this book, I, it's not really like, it's like lots of books I love, but not really like anything else I was picking where it's a book, you know, it's, I don't know, it just kind of sets fire to you in a way. Mm-hmm. Nothing else, uh, you know, if, if you, you always want, what certainly growing up in as, as a, as a man in 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 in, in England, you, you sort of worry: Are these? Is it okay to have feelings? Mm. What does it? Are the English sort of just dry, passionless gods? Mm. And this is a, a a book that says no. You, they, they may destroy you, but they are the most precious things you have. Mm. You know, and it's this battle between these three characters, all of whom I kind of relate to. Be you know. Kathy Heathcliff and and, and Edgar mm. and you're you're scared. Like, do you want to be Heathcliff or do you want to be Edgar? And you get pulled <laughs> in both. Sometimes I think I've been both. Yeah. You know they are such. You know they're sort of passionate savage mm. and the overly fastidious, overly mannered wuss mm. at some level. And then Kathy, who's sort of awful. Mm. You know, capricious, oh. mm. uh, betrays both of them, but just capable of a passion that is remarkable and, mm. and I was sort of seduced by it mm. you know and it, it sort of shows you a side of the English that I can't think is in almost any other book mm. and certainly no other book from that time you look at other early-ish great English novels mm. you know uh, Jane Austen, Thackeray all yeah. you know they're all somewhat cold somewhat calculating restrained. somewhat very restrained mm. very aware of things like money things like society, all of these other side of English life. And Emily Bronte doesn't give a fuck, doesn't care about no, no, any of that. Um, the... Doesn't care about any of that yeah. stuff. She exists in a totally different psychic world, mm-hmm. you know, and it's uh, it's a side of me that I didn't feel I got in any other book, mm. or certainly that age, mm. where it's not necessarily sort of, sexual but it's very romantic mm. you know and it's very it explains about human feelings mm. in a way you will not get from a lot of other certainly a lot of other 19th century writers yeah super interesting i think that's so astute that there's um a license for passion mm. that you know 
predictably astonished her contemporaries. Uh, she wrote in the foreword, I think, I wonder whether it is, I think her word is, I'm going to bastardize this, but it's something like, I wonder whether it's permissible to create a thing like Heathcliff. She doesn't say a character. Yeah. She says a thing like Heathcliff. I mean, it's as though she knows she's created um, uh, something that is a sort of distillation of of, of feelings, yeah, of and feelings. desire. Yes, yeah, and he's he's awful, and Kathy's worse. But they're the most compelling pair in all of literature, in a way. You know, completely. And 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 I think that's the um, permission to have huge feelings and see them reflected in a book is why we go to literature, right? Is, well, is to, it's, it's one of the reasons, right. to, and one of the things you want, or or to have your own feelings reflected back to you and yes. explained and clarified. And it's a book that, unlike most things in the English canon, does that mm. or does that to an aspect of, you know, normally you get that in poetry. Mm. And here's a here's this sort of prose dream almost and this very strange structure that, again, is very much about landscape. And it's a landscape I've never been to. Mm. Uh, but I can imagine it from the, what, what I imagine in the book is so vivid. Mm. And these characters from a time I hardly know, the early 19th century, mm-hmm. You know, and and yet, and I've not read the book since I read it when I was seventeen or eighteen. You've not, you've not never. Read it. No, I've oh. read excerpts from it, but never sat and read it again. Yeah. And yet, it, and lots of details I wouldn't remember correctly. Yeah. But it's that those feelings yeah. still, you know, they're still inside me, very, very yeah. strong. Ever yeah. one of those ever since you, when you, if it, if you love it, when you love it, you will have bits of it forever. I think. Yeah. I wonder whether, and this is, <laughs> I'm, I'm only extrapolating this because of the conversation I had with Carol about this book. Do you think it informed how you felt about love, that that love necessarily, romantic love, uh, necessitated that kind of tumult? Or do you think it more informed what was permissible, feelings that were permissible to have individually? Was it, was it, about, was it relational or was it private, what you think, in, in the way that it was formative to you? I think it probably both. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it articulated better than I ever could a sort of grandiosity that I had within me that's probably not always healthy. But um, but it was saying, you know, it, these strong feelings, feelings so strong mm-hmm. that they kill all of these characters mm-hmm. or the characters mm-hmm. die and the feelings are still not removed and never get removed even after they're, you know, in their quiet graves mm-hmm. at the end um, are in their own way great things. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that it's so. I don't think it. I don't think it necessarily taught me how to feel. It showed me what I was likely to feel anyway. Mm. You know, um, if that if there's any difference in that. No, I think there is. I mean, one of the things that Carol made me laugh when she mm-hmm. picked this book because she said this is one of the books. She's the only person to have picked a book that ruined her. Uh, most people pick books that change them for the better. Carol is. And this book ruined her. She said, it fucking destroyed me because I thought every man was, I thought love was supposed to be Heathcliff. And she said, I, I now in my, you know, later years feel I should write a letter to everyone I ever dated in my twenties because I felt they were wanting because it, they weren't Heathcliff. I, I mean, and, and I think. Is Carol English? No. Okay. Well, uh, and it's and it's interesting because I think this is something that maybe a gender fall along gender lines. I had lunch with um, our friend Marsha the other day, and we were talking 
not about this at all, apropos of nothing. Uh, and she was talking about a former relationship and she'd been chatting about it to her mum. And her mum had laughed and said, darling, you were never supposed to marry Heathcliff. And that, that, yeah. it, that it is a byword for, for um, you know, the path we shouldn't take is perhaps something that, that splits yeah. us as, as along gender lines, I know. I don't I, know. I, 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 yeah, I mean, I suppose I related to all three of the characters mm. in different ways. I wasn't sat there just wanting to be, yeah. just wanting to be Kathy. Yeah. And I had these side of me that I felt was very savage. And this far side of me that I felt was very fastidious. Mm. And another side of me that I felt was overly romantic. Mm. And it wasn't, it was just that I felt I, I, the triangle between them is what I was sort of mm. captivated by and pulled around and, and, Kathy makes awful decisions in both directions. Yes, you know, so so that's also you know you, you you know, and she and she doesn't live by her decisions. Yeah, you know, she goes back on herself. Yes. It's you know that's something that I would always be scared of doing. Yes, so it, it's not. I wasn't sat there going, uh, you know, I want a Heathcliff in my life. Right, it, it's a different kind of uh, probably maybe it's a different kind of response to it than that. But right. it's this response to is there a way of having big feelings and navigating them differently to that yeah. as opposed to just the desire for big feelings yeah. you know i don't think i think i was always prone to big feelings perhaps right <laughs> grandiosity yeah. came easily <laughs> that's what you say i don't say that um let's talk about your third book this was really fun to get into um your third book is the thin red line by no. james jones no we're out, we're out of order oh we're out of order Tender is the night is the third book ah so sorry let's go back so your third book is Tender is the Night by F. Scott Fitzgerald, which was um, published in 1934. Um, this was such a treat. I haven't reread this for ages, so to pull this off the shelf and nose around in it was just delightful. I, I, I think I probably read this because of you. Um, I've read much of his, but I don't think I'd read Tender is the Night until you told me to quite some years ago so it was already associated with you which I really loved um and it was fun I also just was like oh I know this comes from Keats the um title but it was fun just to go and quickly look up where the title comes from so I'm going to read just quickly the poet it's from Ode to a Nightingale and uh I, I'm going to read it just because not the whole thing just this verse because I think it's in Formative, because I think he didn't just ever just choose a title lightly. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy. Though the dull brain perplexes and retards, already with thee, tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. So it was fun to reread it over to a nightingale too. Um, and it was just lovely to see that phrase embedded in the in the original poem. Um, tell me when when you read this and who you were when you read it and who you were after you read it. I was twenty four or five, mm -hmm. and as with most of these books, I was lost. Mm -hmm. I was trying to find some aspect of myself. And um, I'd left university, obviously, and was uh, bumbling around. Were you in New York? Were you in South America? No, I was still in London, I mm -hmm. think. 
Yeah, because I remember reading the short stories afterwards on the tube. So I was definitely still in London. <laughs> um, and I was looking again, a, a period where I was looking for new writers to fall in love with. And I became fixated with Fitzgerald and Hemingway, mm. as uh, probably every man has to at that point in life. <laughs> and um, we'll talk about Hemingway more with the with the Thin Red Line, I think. But, um, but as with... Wuthering Heights and Feelings, you know, a, a kind of book I love and a kind of thing I love is, is I, I, I love people that can use words very prettily, mm. turns of phrase, funny, nasty, clever, always been obsessed by it. And, you know, I love lyrical novels, mm. just, just love them. And he's the master. Mm. And this book is one of, one of the, one of my favorites, you know, uh, probably the only one that came close, which I didn't didn't quite fit in with, was Mrs. Dalloway uh-huh. for a for a pure lyrical novel Agreed. where it's just about language and yet it still flows and is very readable page to page. There's lots of uh, like the the notebooks of uh, Lloyd's Matter Brigger. I love, but it's very dense. dense. You can't go. You can't go. Here's a light read. This is also. It's a book. I've unlike a lot of these books. I've actually reread it multiple times. Uh-huh. And as you get older, your perception changes. Mm. It's a book that I, and I, I remember doing it on Talking Book last year and having a completely different reaction to when I read it when I was in my 30s to when I read it when I was in my 20s. Who reads it out of curiosity? I can't remember. But I didn't like her accent for the main character. That irritated me. It was a woman, it was a woman reader. Um, Well, she made him Irish, which I didn't see in the character at all um, of, of, uh, Dick Diver, um, who I think is, uh, to me, is more a representation. He was loosely based on a character called Gerald Murphy, who was a, a sort of flanner on the, uh, and then kind of invented going to the south of France in summer, um, who I don't know very much about and seemed to be a sort of uh, guy who let things slip through his fingers. But I see him more as a representation of a side of Fitzgerald, mm. who is obviously a someone who lived in mostly disappointed life mm. and yet wrote these two incredible novels, neither of which was a success in his own lifetime. Mm. You know, which I uh, say so he's, a, he's a sort of fascinating. His own life is almost more of a novel than his books. Yes. Um, and you see, and ultimately, I, I, I think with, uh, with Dick Diver, it's this character where he's asking a question that Fitzgerald obviously asked himself which is why can't I have it both ways Mm. you know why can't I live a life that is for pleasure and for science why can't I be a gentleman of leisure and get things done Mm. and you can't and and, and that's something that that that, you know is the 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 juxtaposition why can't I be in a a marriage and have affairs with beautiful actresses Mm. you know you, you can't do both you can't have two opposite things at once no matter how much you think maybe you can figure it out and mm-hmm. i find that such a sort of fascinating character because he's he's kind of awful mm. but he's very human mm. he's an un, i don't think of there's many characters in books that are as well realized and you see them their lives fall through their own fingers and they're incapable of stopping it mm. and it's a you know it, 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 when you're young, you're when I was young, I was fixated really on the first half of the book. And then when you get older, you know that half so well, this sort of glamorous life, you know, in this beautiful house with with 
a gorgeous wife and they know how to live and they're showing everyone how to live in this modern way of mm. of of beaches and dinner parties and knowing the best things and the best people and that seemed very aspirational and then it falls through his fingers and as i've gone uh, as i've got older and i go back to the book you i, I pay more attention to, to the second half of the yes. book when his life piece by piece falls through his fingers and you see why it happens and how he's incapable of stopping it mm. and he becomes a sort of uh memento mori character when you're you're like, please let that not be me. You know, <laughs> he, he's, he's everything and it, it all falls away yeah. and he loses everything. Yeah. It's, um, I, I agree. I find it, you know, yes, I, I, I know he's a, it was loosely based on Gerald Murphy and, and she is based on Sarah Murphy to a degree. And this Riviera life, as you say, was aspirational and, and it was sort of astonishing. The opening chapter is mm-hmm. the, the piece that I had pulled for us to sort of have a look at, because I think it just lays the whole book out for you as that first paragraph. Um, but I also agree that the, the coming back to it, that last third where, you know, his wife is hospitalized for her um, mental breakdown, which is also what happened to Zelda, his wife. And then that he, but that they fall so, apart that she actually ends up recovering and remarrying and mm-hmm. he sinks into dissolution and alcoholism uh you know it's a it's an extraordinary end to the way it begins in some ways of course it's you, you it's inevitable that that should be where it goes and yet it feels somehow so devastating and particularly with the hindsight of knowing that that is you know, that Scott Fitzgerald, she didn't leave him, but, but he died at 44 of, of drink. I mean, it was, mm. uh, it's just horribly prescient of, of his own end. And she is based, the, the medical records are Zelda's own medical records, yes. which I always found sort of heart that, I think there's that phrase from Fitzgerald when he said, you have to have a ice in your heart you know, to write properly. Yes. And the, the, the and brutality the, of doing that. The love letters um, that um, she sends mm-hmm. him in the book are verbatim Zelda's yeah. letters from the sanatorium reminding slash blackmailing Scott yeah. into not leaving. And they're incredibly needy, those letters. Yeah. They're yeah. not really almost love letters. Yeah. They're threats. Yeah. Did you... Um, so you'd read the others by had you read the crack up and things like no crack uh, up's the short stories you crack up is the last thing he wrote i think last I mean, haiku. About, i read all of it right. so i can't remember when i'd read yeah. it i I'd, I'd read the great gatsby before this and didn't love it mm-hmm. now admire it enormously having read it again but didn't particularly love it i i remember it read it when i was 19 or 20 and didn't particularly read it as like a duty almost mm. um and this I read four or five years later and adored. Mm. Uh, I don't know why that's the case, but I still, I still prefer this to the Gatsby. Mm. You know, I think they're they're all, they're all, they're both amazing. Yeah, but this is no, just, he, is he, broader. Yes, he uh, Hemingway wrote in the end, having been rather sort of snobby about this one, wrote that he re- had reconsidered and felt that Tender as the Night was the greatest thing that Fitzgerald had written. Um, their their relationship was it's amazing. He wrote himself, um, I love this little quote. This is something Fitzgerald described himself as a cracked plate, 
Sometimes, though, he wrote, the cracked plate has to be retained in the pantry, has to be kept in service as a household necessity. It can never again be warmed on the stove nor shuffled with the other plates in the dishpan. It will not be brought out for company, but it will do to hold crackers late at night or to go into the icebox under the leftovers. I mean, that this man thinks of himself as a cracked plate to hold leftovers when he's the fucking main dish at the banquet. <laughs> but he's, you know, the great romantic... American. Yeah. And there's an amazing passage, which I haven't got to hand in this, which is something I thought about previously when he's describing the First World War, because this is a post-First World War book, mm. and, and that had devastated Europe. And he re- his understanding that it was a, a war caused by, you know, the, the romantic sentiments of the English and the Germans and the French, which is brilliant. His understanding, you know, it's amazing, his perception that, of the dangers of this kind of lyrical life that he's also showing. That's fascinating. I'm going to read a little bit of the opening pages, mm. if you don't mind. Or would you like to? No, I'd like you to. Are you sure? Yeah, you're much better at making them. On the pleasant shore of the French Riviera, about halfway between Marseille and the Italian border, stands a large, proud, rose-coloured hotel. Deferential palms cool its flush facade, and before it stretches a short, dazzling beach. Lately, it has become a summer resort of notable and fashionable people. A decade ago, it was almost deserted after its English clientele went north in April. Now, many bungalows cluster near it. But when this story begins, only the the cupolas of a dozen old villas rotted like water lilies among the massed pines between Gosse's Hotel d'Etranger and Cannes, five miles away. The hotel and its bright tan prayer rug of a beach were one. In the early morning, the distant image of Cannes, the pink and cream of old fortifications, the purple alp that bounded Italy, were cast across the water and lay quavering in the ripples and rings sent up by sea plants through the clear shallows. Before eight, a man came down to the beach in a blue bathrobe, and with much preliminary application to his person of the chilly water and much grunting and loud breathing, floundered a minute in the sea. When he had gone, beach and bay were quiet for an hour. Merchantmen crawled westward on the horizon. Busboys shouted in the hotel court. The dew dried upon the pines. In another hour, the horns of motors began to blow down from the winding road along the low range of the moor, which separates the littoral from the true Provencal France. I just think that is, is an amazing a bit of scene setting with just this one astonishing metaphor of the bright prayer rug of a beach. And this one man and then the the widening out of the purple alp and then the zooming in on the dew drying on the pines. I just find that some really astonishing prose. Yes. And uh, I think uh, another writer that, that you introduced me to that I've always loved is James Salter. Mm. And I, uh, and I thought long and hard about putting a James Salter book uh-huh. in later in the list, but I felt that, you know, James like Fitzgerald covers a lot of the same yes. this uh, description in in a, in a fairly American language. Yes. You know, it's an American way of describing that is still very almost poetical and beautiful. It's yeah. it's easy to follow the words. It's not overly complicated, yes. but it 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 sort of opens your mind in a way that that you, that you don't get from straighter prose. Yeah, um, I agree. It, it's so interesting. Which one of the Salters would would have it been had you had to pick one? Oh, light years always. Yeah, and it was very near. It was like number six or seven on the list. <laughs> very, very, you know. Um, let's talk about your fourth book. 
Your fourth book is The Thin Red Line by James Jones. It was published in 1962. I did not know this book. I only knew the Malik film. So this was really fun. And thank you for introducing me to it. Um, memorials, war memoirs. Has this been always a feature, something you've sought out? Yes. Love, love war books. Mm. Um, I think... James Jones is slightly more than that. And we'll talk about that in a second, yes. but he's amazing. Um, I came at this, having seen the film, mm-hmm. I saw the film when it came out in 98 or 99 mm-hmm. um, and thought it was beautiful and incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then I read the book 10 or 12 years later, mm-hmm. I think in my, in my late-ish 30s. And this was a hard book to pick. They made a film that was a straight film of the book mm-hmm. and it was about seven hours long. And then they edited together this impressionistic thing of great beauty and no narrative flow mm-hmm. where they've taken different battle scenes from the movie and pushed them into one. You know, right. it's completely, having read the book, it, I, having read the book, I now understand the film, right. but it's not, it's not a, a straight telling. It's a very strange thing where they've summoned some of the characters from the book. It was a film they made in the, in the edit, I, I mm-hmm. believe. Um, I think other people thought they were going to be the star of the film and they're completely removed from the film, you know, this, because it was the first film he'd made in years. Um, the film is beautiful. I would definitely recommend reading the book first. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is a different thing. Mm. Um, so it was the second of his trilogy, the first of which is um, From Here to Eternity, mm. which I read more recently. Um, I love that, but I love this more. Mm. Um it's it's sort of the immediacy. What what did I like about it? It was well. First of all, it's a big, broad sweep of characters, mm-hmm. you know. And 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 the last two books that that, that I picked are both about uh, these, you know, all of society in a book, which I think is something that I've tried to allude to in in my own work a bit. I, I love a broad canvas of characters, mm. um, and I think James Jones is an underrated master at that. Mm. You know, I think. Um, they're mostly male. This is more male even than um, From Here to Eternity, where there are a couple of very strong female characters. But this one's almost almost entirely male. But it's still this whole sweep of the human experience. Mm. Um, and, and, and these quite, it's ridiculous at times. And then for me, why I picked this book over, over everything else is, is a, you know, a, a, a love of action you know, of, of trying to figure out how to depict action of how you describe that side of existence. And, and apart from arguably short sections of, of Wuthering Heights that also do that amazingly, this is the best description of, 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 of terror and of the fear and of the, the, that I've ever read, mm. you know, the feeling I've read a lot of war books. Mm. Um, and to me, there's nothing like the battle descriptions in this book the feeling that of, of, of people having their kind of uh, all of their delusions and, and, and vanity ripped away by the thought that when I step out from under this cover, I might die in the next five seconds. And he describes that horror and that moment better than any, than anyone else in anything I've ever read. Mm. And that's really what, what I remember apart from, you know, this incredible range of, of, of characters and, and some of whom are, mostly appalling and some of whom are mostly lovable, but all of whom are shown as 360 degree personalities Mm. and all of whom are sympathetic. And it's also, 
this incredible book about isolation, you know, where war is seen as almost an, an inevitability, a sort of cultural inevitability because of the isolation we all feel within us. You know, these characters are so trapped within their shells as being a man in 1930s or 1940s America facing these Japanese characters. And, and you see at a societal level how this sort of utterly pointless conflict over an island that nobody had ever heard of before the war mm. is inevitable because people can't speak to each other mm. and people live this isolated horrifying existence and they erect a wall and they paint an image of themselves on that wall and that's who they want the world to see but inside there's someone else mm. and and i think that that's something i find you know a very real problem for me and for everybody mm. you know and, and and where he's a master at showing you that mm. at showing these interior lives of these lost often quite inarticulate men mm. who are riddled with delusions and vanities and desires and often quite in conflict with themselves and how they exist in this world and how they don't know each other at all and how they often dislike things about people that are really just reflections of themselves mm. and you know I, I i was reading recently about hemingway and how much he hated the um from here to eternity mm. and it probably made me love from here to eternity even more because it's in, in even though it's you know it's it's very manly and it's about these tough guys in the lead up to um to world war Two, and then this is it, it, its follow-up which is about fighting in world war Two. the characters are these 360 degree non-heroic people which is what i really relate to you know i i just i just find it you know if if, if we are gonna learn to not shoot each other then the way is through understanding each other mm. and i think that message is uh is amazing. And and that's what sort of, you know, the, these, you've had these incredibly sympathetic characters whom you just adore, who then have feet of clay mm. and these awful bullying characters who then at the last minute, they're not redeemed. They're still awful, mm. but you understand them mm. and you know why they're the way they are. Mm. And you just, so, so, some of them, you know, there's a amazing, I think he's a major in this book called, um, they call him, his nickname's Bugger. They call him Buggerstein. He's a, 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 a Jewish character. Um, and he's, he won't send his men out to die. Mm. And the colonel is putting him under this enormous pressure to take the, to take a hill. And he won't send the men to die. And I always, I, you know, and the colonel ends up relieving him of his, of his, of, of his, of his command, mm. gives him a medal that he doesn't deserve to make him go quietly. And it just, it's such a great, microcosm of the ludicrousness of war because mm. to me he's the hero mm. you know and the whole thing is the whole battle is at, at some level necessary at another level ridiculous mm. but the people fighting it are fighting for things they'll never have mm. you know it's uh so the bits of it just just i haven't really read it since i read it but bits of it just stay with me forever mm. you know that's really you know and then I'm, I'm so interested because I didn't know the book, so I had to really go backwards and start, you know, with Wikipedia and go dive deep from there. To find that it was set in Guadalcanal, I had to Google where that was. Then I had mm -hmm. to go. Then I had to widen out on the map and be like, "All right, I see that it's an island, but where are we? Oh, we're in Papua New Guinea. We're in the Marshall Islands we're in, that we're, nobody's ever heard of. Nobody's ever heard of." Um, Mm -hmm. Then I had to go and Google what the battle had been over, and I was like, oh, okay, so they wanted 
a foothold in the Pacific because of Japan. Okay, okay. I mean, this is also, you know, as a Brit, as you know, my understanding of World War Two is it took place in Europe. You know, I forget about mm-hmm. the other frontier and the whole other front that was going on, and that, that's entirely a measure of my insularity. But that, so all of it was... So I had this sort of mini immersion of learning about that, understanding the particulars of it, then going off and trying to find excerpts of the book because I didn't have time to get to it on my own copy of it. And then finding what I found, this, just what you've articulated so beautifully, Dan, you really did. Like I really felt your reading of the book. Um, This, the banality Mm -hmm. of war and that he does it so beautifully in the excerpts that I found um, that he has, that the language he uses is so simple in it. There is something so um, uh, beautiful about the simplicity of it because it makes it so transactional. It's as though, it's as though we're utter fucking idiots for making it any more complicated than what it is. And it's like the language is mirroring the simplicity and the banality and the mm. absurdity of what is what's going on. This this was a one of the things that I loved. He, uh, Fife, one of the mm-hmm. characters, simply walked off by himself into the jungle to look at all the things which would continue to exist after he had ceased to. There were a lot of them. Fife looked at them all. They remained singularly unchanged by his scrutiny. I just yeah I mean he love that and he creates great kind of emotional ambiguity mm. with very simple language mm. it's a very readable book mm. and I think that's uh, you know to me it's one of the three great world war 2 books mm. and the other the, the, for america from american perspective i th- i think this one there's a, there's others that i love but i think this is the standout and then Life and Fate about the war in Russia mm-hmm. by Vasily Grossman, uh-huh. which is amazing. Uh-huh. And for, for English people, I think The End of the Affair, oh. you know, which I think those are, to me, are Story. the three great World War II books. Yes. And there's many other wonderful ones, but those are, are the three favourites. I um, I may have talked about this already on the podcast, and I'm sure I've told you, but um, The End of the Affair uh, as an audio book, as read by Colin Firth. Uh, I love Colin Firth. I think it may be his greatest work. <laughs> not kidding it's one of those exquisite marriages of text to reader it's he was born to read it it's magnificent anyway um a a broader question is how you you touched on this briefly how does these books and this one in particular where do you see their impact in the games and the stories that you've created and written where where is the Overlap. I, I would think people would be fascinated to have walked in the extraordinary worlds you have created to know just how literate you are. I mean, it was one of the reasons, other than you being my dearest friend, but it was one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the, on the podcast, because I don't think people have an inkling, or unless they do and they're smart enough to see how literate you are from the worlds you've made. But I'm curious where you see literature as having informed these creations of yours. Um, I suppose it's um, 
well, it's it's at two levels because mm-hmm. it's in, it's created me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's created everything in me. It partially comes from books. Partially, it's life. Partially, it's movies. And 50, 40, 30%, whatever it is, is books. Mm-hmm. You know, how, particularly, you know, those, those, those games that I, that I was involved in making were, were big mm-hmm. um, expansive. Mm-hmm. and expansive. And the best material, and, and where you'd spend a lot of time with some of the characters. So a two-hour movie doesn't show you how to do that. It might show you how to set up a scene. It might influence how you deal with certain bits of sort of plot structure, um, but it doesn't show you how to create a 360-degree character. And and so if you've got these, particularly the lead characters in the games, were, were often, you know, you had to spend a lot of time with them and see them in a lot of situations. And I always felt I could only... Make a character or come up with a character. If I could imagine them in every situation, mm-hmm. I had a character. Mm-hmm. And until that moment, they're just a caricature, mm-hmm. and and they felt better when they were this kind of three hundred sixty degree character. And you you knew what they would say and how they would be in any situation. Mm-hmm. And I think that a writer like James Jones, in particular, is a sort of education in doing that because you see these characters all sides of their personality, all sides of their self-perception in all situations, um, in, 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 in incredible banality and absolute terror and all points in between. Um, so, they're, they're, so in things like, you know, certain writers like him, you know, and then for things that are a bit more, that are still kind of action-driven but a bit more comic like Raymond Chandler, you know, you get a different kind of way of showing it, Um and then lots of characters where there were background characters and I just named them after people I liked in books, you know, or, or just, or, or did my, what? Who? Like who? Who's name? Like I once made, I once, I, from light years, I was uh, always obsessed by this minor kind of bon vivant character who seems to know how to live in the world. Because uh-huh. no one in, in that book, I always related to it because nobody knows how to live. Sure. They're all lost and in this sort of miasma of their own making. Right. And then there's this one guy in it who's a medium level character called Arno. Uh-huh. And he's this sort of, he's always totally content with himself. So relaxed. And I'm always jealous of those people. <laughs> like, how do you exist? I don't know how to. And and so I had in, 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 in the background of, uh, I, I, he was in either Grand Theft Auto 4, I think he might've been one of the add-on packs and cut out of Grand Theft Auto 4, but he was this French kind of uh, modern day version of Flanner who just knew how to exist. So I called him Arno in, in honor of him. <laughs> in yeah. love it. So, you know, little things like that, they yeah. just sort of just throw away. But uh, but most of it's just the sort of bigger, particularly in writers like James Jones, like uh, Middlemarch that we'll come to in a second, mm-hmm. like Dickens, who, who, whom I've always loved, like Vanity Fair, when people are writing about all of society, mm-hmm. when people are showing, you know, viewpoints from multiple kinds of characters, mm-hmm. when what in the point of that kind of fiction is, you know, it's it's not the exteriors, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm this race, I'm this class, but what's inside? Mm. You know, that's the point of fiction. Mm. It's to show, you know, the dividing line shouldn't be the material superficial. It should be, are you an arsehole or not? That is how we should value people. Are you trying to be a better person or not? You know, and that's what I get out of that kind of fiction and what I try to let sort of bleed in in certain places. Mm. You know, when you are faced, where's the line of your behaviour? And when you're faced with choices what is your own ethical framework and how much you're willing to break it. Mm. You know, that's, I think, it's one of the sort of purposes of 
realist fiction of that kind mm. or sort of material fiction i call it where you are dealing with sort of external factors mm-hmm. or what how do you respond to them mm-hmm. and that's the point of it is to sort of let you see it from other perspectives that's fascinating i think that's um I think that's what's so interesting to me about fiction and the, you know, the very obvious distinction between fiction and the worlds you created. In fiction, you have no choice, right? You are, you are given the palette that you're given. You're given the frame that you're given. You, you can choose to lean into, relate to, empathize with the characters over others, but you are, um, you are the, 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 the drawing is prescribed. It, it is what it is. Your world's, as you say, confront you with these moral choices and your ethics and your imperatives are being challenged at every given turn. It's interesting to see the mapping of one onto the other or to hear you talk about that. Yeah, I think in those games, on the story side, it, you were you had lots of freedom over choices, but fundamentally the story funneled you in a certain way. So it was kind of making sure those two didn't clash too much and trying to make it feel like I'm a nicer version of this character versus they're a nastier version of this character. It funnels, there are, there would be flexibility in quite how it funneled, but it was, it was a sort of, which I I also think is to some extent real. We, in terms of our lives, we are still governed by forces outside our own control. We are not, you know, absolute agents of anarchy at any moment. You are still pushed and propelled by everyone else in the world as well. Totally. It's one of the things that I loved about the, um, love about the show that I'm on the For All Mankind, Mm -hmm. the alternate history show. You know, we don't, we don't imagine that um, suddenly we're all in flying cars in 1960. (laughs) History is just Mm -hmm. a little off, but actually astonishingly similar to where, where we actually are. And I, I think that, your last book is Middlemarch by George Eliot. I have a connection. I'm just going to jump in with this book and you very deeply because I've mentioned this on the show before. Uh, I did Frost Nixon on Broadway many years ago and had the great uh, luxury and privilege of living with you while I went to do the show every night. And every night I would read Middlemarch on stage because it was the book that Caroline was reading on the plane when she was being picked up by... Uh, David Frost. So Middlemarch to me is actually oddly sort of associated with you because of that whole time that I was in New York living at your house. Tell me why, I'm guessing Middlemarch wasn't associated with me. Tell me why it's on your list. Um, It was a book I'd always resisted Mm -hmm. because I thought it was too long and it had been described as being quite fusty Mm. and quite dowdy by someone I don't think had necessarily read it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and and then I, I, I got to my late 30s or early 40s and decided I was going to try and pick through, you know, my, my sort of uh, feeble claims to be any kind of writer would be better reinforced if I'd actually read some books. And so I, st- I, I started... I'm going to interrupt you. But I read, did, some, read Dan, some classics. Dan was, has read... Everything. There were many holes and there are still far too many holes. It's still a sort of Swiss cheese of knowledge. Um, but I've tried to pick off uh, some of the classics I hadn't read, yeah. some by reading them, some by doing them as audiobooks. Um, I think I did Middlemarch as both. Um, and I started reading it and I 
I liked it, but the start is quite fusty. Yes. It's the bit with Kasorbon and, and, and Dorothea, and, and, and who are two of, well, certainly he is one of the best characters in all of literature. He's, He's like an amazing nightmare. Um, but you fall in love with her. And then, and, and, and you also fall in love, because I had not been, it was the first thing by George Eliot I read. And, and, and you know, George Eliot's sort of second only to God in her understanding of the human experience. <laughs> She's amazing. Yeah. It is, it's, 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 it's like nothing else. Mm. And, and, and her voice, and I, I don't, love all of her books but i love middlemarch and i, I love daniel deronda um that just it's it's like no one else it's like no one else in english that i know of um the only thing that comes close to my mind is war and peace um where they can describe in one book all of the human experience all of what it means to be a man to be a woman to live in that time to live in all time just amazing you know and, and every single character is memorable and ridiculous and human at the same time no none of them are caricatures and yet none of them have the integrity they want to have mm. none of them are you know they, they all aspire to being this sort of 19th century ideal of a sort of perfect you know human being with limitless integrity and, and and nothing but backbone and none of them are quite that yet none of them are as awful as they seem even 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 Sorbon, who's this wretched sort of greedy man who steals away this young woman who who you know who he really should let marry someone else and then is vindictive beyond the grave even he's a sympathetic character in his own way and then the side characters i always remember the one um mrs cadwallader yes. who's a, just amazing larger than life <laughs> characters which i i think certainly with, with the work i was doing you know and in, in, in anything is just to make the side character remember with side characters they are the protagonists of their own lives they're not side characters to, to try and make everyone leap off the page. You know, that's what I think she is as a writer is, is, is better than anyone at. And, and I love Dickens, but I think George Eliot has wider range, you know, and it just, it, but still has some of the comedy, you know, Dickens has a lot of, a lot of comedy in it, but I still think there's some chapters in Middlemarch. that are as funny as anything I'll ever read, you know, some of the bits like when he's, when, when the uncle, uh, I can't remember his name is Brooke, but I can't remember what his first name is. Mm. Uh, Dorothy's uncle, oh, yeah. when he's campaigning and they're haranguing him, it's amazing. I don't you know, there, it. There's so many good bits in it. So much, so much happens while almost nothing happens. Yeah. I was reading the other day a little about it, and apparently she had a whole plot mechanic about cholera mm. and about a pandemic mm. that she ended up pulling out. Mm. So, um, so it sort of echoes over the top of the book. Um, but there's so much in there. I, I, yes, I totally agree. And I, I so, I so agree and love what you said about second to God. No one understands the human condition as well as she does. I think her capacity for empathy is boundless mm. and keeps unraveling. So she'll set Dorothy up as this high minded, um, earnest young woman who wants to think well of herself. And, and, you know, I, I love the book because, she reminds me, she has so many echoes of Isabel Archer, who is mm -hmm. always, always my favourite person ever to have been created on the page. And, and yet and yet, she has this whole other different, similar arc, these two earnest, young, high-minded women desperate to think well of themselves who marry these older reptilian men yeah. who have actually presented themselves in one way while secretly being 
completely other. Um, but Dorothea, you go on this beautiful journey where with great delicacy, George Eliot pulled back on the high-mindedness. You, you're awakened with her into the realization. And instead of being repulsed, you go with Dorothea, again, with no saintliness, but on this journey where she realizes she she must just feel sorry for this man, for this man that she has married, who mm-hmm. is aspiring to write the key to all mythologies. <laughs> well, that, yeah, <laughs> that's the terror. Just, <laughs> Dan, you're, you, you're good. You've written, you've written your mythologies. Um, but it, I, I, I'm so with you in that. And, you know, I think I mentioned this the last time the book came up with Virginia Woolf is quoted as saying it was the only English novel written for grown-ups, And, I, I'm so, it's it's such a good soundbite and I love it. But the more I sit with it and the more I interrogate it, the more I realize what an astute observation that is, that there actually is enormous maturity. By grown-ups, she means maturity. By grown-ups, to my mind, she means wisdom. And the wisdom that George Eliot has is not the wit of a Jane Austen, is not the... Um, curious sort of intricacies of a Henry James, there is something so grounded and dare I say it feminine in the, in the capacity to hold all these contrary beliefs and people and their foibles and their frailties that George Eliot has. I, I agree. I, I don't love Daniel Durando. Middlemarch to me is her, is, is the be all. And I mean, I've, I've read the others, but this to me is, as you say, the height of it. And the teemingness, this, you know, it's mm. called A Study in Provincial Life. That's the subtitle of it. Like it's, that it, well, it's, 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 it's this thing of sort of all England is here, yeah. which I love about it. Um, and it's something you've done in your work. Tried is, to, is, <laughs> tried, tried to not got close in, in, in this, uh, the way that, you know, you read Dickens, which I love, or, or, or a book like, Vanity Fair, and the morality is quite heavy-handed. Yes, you know. Yes. Whereas her morality, it's not non-existent. Mm. It, you know, the the, the 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 evil and the duplicitous mostly get punished, mm. but no one is unambiguously good. Mm. And sometimes characters you think are going to come a a dreadful cropper like uh, Fred Vinci, mm. and they kind of grow up through the book mm. and end up almost being like the hero of the whole thing. Mm. You know, I think it's a it's a, it is that kind of more balanced viewpoint that, that that there is some kind of karmic uh, retribution, but it's not as linear as in a lot of her contemporaries. And it also does the, you know, the, the um, she's an amazing character, George Eliot. And I think it's that sort of, I've always been fascinated by, you know, in, in, in the sort of, battle of the sexes how remarkable women english novelists are you know starting with jane austen and and the the brontes but then george Eliot, you know through to um virginia wolf you get this amazing talent just as women are starting to begin to assert themselves almost before they really assert themselves Mm. in british life but as they're beginning to have the idea they might want to assert themselves in british life this incredible kind of blossoming of talent mm. um 
in, in the one area where they could compete yeah. because nobody could withhold from them a pen and paper. Right. You know, and I, I think that she's probably, you know, the sort of high point of that for me. Right. Um, and just as women almost couldn't be educated at that point, just right. as women's, you know, none, they're not allowed into universities and she's, you know, publishing as a man, but not really. It was sort of understood. Yeah. You know, I think it's an amazing life and you know with all of those restrictions and unhappily married and mm. living with someone else when that was a very rebellious thing to do and mm. and then just this great vision of the human experience and of, of the english experience mm. you know she's sort of and and you know sympathetic to all people the good and the bad right. you know no one is single single colored right i i was struck and this is just a side note but um in, in a measure of my sort of blindness to it Middlemarch is a historical novel, meaning mm-hmm. she wrote it. It's set, I mean, it was in the published 1830s. in yeah. and it's set in 1830. And it's so easy from this vantage in, you know, 2021 mm-hmm. to look back and the whole of the, uh, the whole of the 19th century is just people in carriages and some have got electricity, but all, you know, and it's mm-hmm. so easy to sort of paint it like that. And then when I reframe and think, no, a book that I've just read and give, just given you, Jonathan Franzen's new book, Crossroads, um, is, to my mind, absolutely masterful, extraordinary novel. And it is set firmly in the 60s. And it is a historical novel. And not that far away from where we live now. You know, mm-hmm. 60 years, give or take 50 as the, as the novel progresses. And yet how very different and yet how alike, obviously. But it is firmly, it's 600 pages of history that he is immersed in in order to write this. It was helpful to actually have that framework as a reminder of, oh, Middlemarch, Middlemarch was Crossroads when it came out. Middlemarch was was that. It was not, uh, you know, they would, it was referencing reform laws that were pioneering at the time that were not a given Um I, I thought that was mm-hmm. interesting because I hadn't, I don't think I'd really clocked that. I think I too had just painted it as her writing about her, her era. No, she was writing about what had made her era. Right. And the, the changes that had moved Britain to this very successful later 19th century. Right. The economic and cultural changes that had happened in this period after the Napoleonic Wars and before the Victorian period. Right. You know, and it's, uh, yeah. it's a different world. It must be in the world either of her girlhood or just before her girlhood right um dan this was an absolute pleasure i can't thank you enough thank you for picking them so thoughtfully thank you for making the time thank you for sitting with me and doing this it was just lovely selfishly it was just so nice to sit and talk to you for an hour about books because we get you know five minutes here and there where we recommend to each other and we don't get to dive like this normally complain about children there's also that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we can do that soon. Thank you for having room. me. It was lovely. Thank you, Dan. I love this conversation so much. Dan is so well read and he's so emotionally literate as well. It just felt like a real treat to have time together and climb into the books, uh, some of which I knew he loved and some of which were new to me. We've had years of recommending to one another, handing over copies, texting each other recommendations. I've wanted him on the show since I first conceived of it. So thank you, Dan, for finally conceding to my relentless bullying and for finishing out season three with such a flourish. Season four is in the works. 
But the truth is that I actually need a little break. I am a writer as well as a reader, and I really have found it impossible to curate and record an entire season and write at the same time. So I'm going to ask you all to bear with me while I take a little break and I write a bit. And I have a think about who I'd like to interview next, which leads me to you, my lovely listeners. Who would you like to hear from? What voices are you missing? Message me on Instagram, Bookish with Sonia, or find me on Twitter and send me your suggestions. I'll take names, I'll take professions. If you would like to hear what books shaped a scuba diver or a sword swallower, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And in the meantime, stay well and happy. Keep reading, keep listening. If you're missing the show, dig up an old season. Spread the word, tell a friend about us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps more than you know. And keep an ear out, because bonus episodes could drop at any time. Thank you all so, so much for listening, and happy holidays wherever in the world you may be. 